Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 41. In your bulletin, we, it indicates that we're going to stop at the end of um, chapter 4. We're actually going to go a little bit into chapter 5 uh, this morning as we continue on. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 41. I invite you to stand with me this morning in reverence to God's Word as we read it together. The Bible says, Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan, that the manslayer might flee there, anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without being at enmity with him in time past. He may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness of the tableland for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan and Bashan for the Manassites. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Shion, and the king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who lived in the east beyond the Jordan, from Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, as far as Mount Siron, that is Hermon, together with all the Agrabah of the east of the Jordan, as far as the sea of the Agrabah under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, that you should learn them and be careful to do them. And the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. You may be seated. This morning, I want us to think about the relationship that we have with God. The relationship we have with Him is obviously a unique relationship among all the relationships that we have with anyone else. No other relationship can be described in the same manner as the relationship we have with our Creator. This relationship we have is a covenant relationship. We both have spoken into that relationship. We are able to even speak into that relationship because God has granted us that privilege and He has called upon us to respond to His offer of a covenant relationship. He has called upon us to repent and believe the Gospel so that we might be in a covenant relationship with Him. There's a vivid picture, though, that we can kind of see as we try to understand this relationship. These are words that may be familiar to you. You've heard them repeated, something like this, I, whatever your name is, take thee, whatever 
his or her name is, to be my wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. According to God's holy ordinance and thereto, I pledge thee my faith, or I pledge myself to thee. You've heard these words, right? The words sometimes altered, not normally expressed exactly like this, although if you're pastor at your wedding is a little bit lazy and just wants to read it. Maybe they were expressed just like that, but maybe you made some changes, but regardless, you get the sense this is a commitment, right? A covenant that a man and a woman enter into in marriage. These words signify the bond that a husband and wife have between each other. Important words like for better, for worse, If you've been married before, you understand these words. These both are likely to happen. For richer or for poor, you say the richer hasn't happened, but we can stick with the poor. In sickness and in health, there's these words that we say to another person when we have made the decision to enter into a covenant relationship with them, the covenant of marriage. And there's some things that are true about that covenant, and they are expressed in in these words that that for marriage it is important to stick with each other for better or for worse in sickness and in health. In our text this morning, we have a reminder of the covenant that God made with His people. We have a, a reminder of those words. In fact, as we look in the coming weeks, We're going to see those words repeated. Very familiar words are going to be repeated over the next couple of weeks as we look at the Ten Commandments that God gave His people, these these laws, these statutes written on stone that were a reminder of the covenant. It was the people of God's responsibility in the covenant to follow those laws. But before we get there, I want us to see the characteristics of a covenant that is made with God. In fact, this morning I want us to see five specific characteristics of a covenant that is made with God because you and I, if we are in Christ, we are in a covenant relationship with Him. We think about the New Testament, the new covenant that Christ gives us. And so this morning, five characteristics of a covenant made with God. The first we see is that a covenant with God is a covenant that offers mercy. A covenant with God is a covenant that offers mercy. As we begin in verse 41 and we read through verse 43, we come to this this almost an aside that has been interjected here by Moses. It's something that really is developed further in Deuteronomy 19. And and I really wouldn't talk about it at all if we were going to be going all the way through the book of Deuteronomy and we're going to come to Deuteronomy 19 and, and see this laid out more specifically by Moses. But since we're not, we'll talk about it for just a moment. He, he lays aside this law, or he gives them rather, this law that talks about what is to happen if a person unintentionally kills another person. There's provision for that in the law. And the thought here is that, let's say that that two men are are out and they're they're doing something and, and by accident, one kills the other. Well, we would think about that in our society and, and we would, you know, be 
upset, obviously, but, but legally, if something is truly an accident, if there was no neglect, if there was no uh, intention behind it, then, then normally we don't, we don't charge someone with that, we don't prosecute, we don't punish someone for something that is an accident. But here, if someone died, it was the legal ability of a person from their family or a person chosen by their family to go then and seek revenge, to, to exact revenge on them for having killed a member of their family. And so what Moses does is he sets up these three particular cities here that if this were to happen, someone can flee to and find safety. If they go to this place, they cannot be sought out. Now, it has to be accidental. They can't kill somebody and run here, or those who were in charge of that city would, would actually take them out and give them over so that they could be punished. But if it was truly an accident, they could go, and there they could find safety. And you say, well, that's, that's, that's terrible. They'd have to leave their family. And they would, but they, they took a life. And life in the Bible is very precious. And so even though it was unintentional, the family would want to seek revenge. We see that in our society, don't we? Even when accidents happen, things that were unintentional, there's still anger, right? If that was your loved one, you would surely have anger toward the person who did it. My hope is that if Christ dwells in your heart, you would be able to forgive you would be able to show mercy, but, but our heart would still say we want vengeance, right? And so Moses seeks this, or puts in place this provision so that someone who does this, someone who kills someone unintentionally, can flee to these cities that are mentioned here and they can find refuge. There their lives would be saved. And so if then someone came into this city and, and tried to seek vengeance and tried to destroy their life, then they would become guilty. They would be responsible for their actions. And trust me, this is a society that takes their laws seriously. Unfortunately, they don't take some of the important ones seriously. They follow God, other gods. They follow false idols. But they do take seriously this law. And so they would punish him. Well, what does this tell us about God? Well, what we see is that God is a God of mercy. He could have said here, well, it doesn't matter if it was unintentional. It doesn't matter if there was no enmity between you and him in the past. You are responsible if this happens. You will be put to death. Even though you've done nothing wrong, even though you had not meant to hurt your neighbor, you had not meant to hurt your friend, he was your friend, he was your neighbor, you had no animosity toward him, but rather this is just what happened. But, but God puts in place mercy. This is a characteristic of, of all the covenants that God makes with his people throughout the Old Testament, and most importantly for us, the new covenant that he has made in Christ for us, is that God is always showing mercy where it is not deserved. He's always giving mercy to His people. He's always giving mercy to those who are undeserving of it. We often take that for granted. I, I honestly believe that there are a number of people out there who claim the name of Christ who believe that somehow they're deserving of this relationship they have with God. 
That, that somehow they've done enough, that they've, they've worked enough, they've tried hard enough, that, hey, I've been a pretty good person, and so it's no wonder that God wants to have this relationship with me. I mean, compared to everybody else, I'm not so bad. Don't you think there's probably a number of people out there that have that attitude? That that's how they function? Hey, I, I do pretty good. I show up at church most every Sunday. I, I put some money over in the offering plate. I participate in some things. I've been going to church a long time. I'm deserving of God's mercy. I'm deserving of this relationship with Him. I've, I've earned it. I've earned my place in heaven. But the fact of the matter is, all the covenants that God has ever given to His people, the relationships that God has built with His people, have all built upon, been built upon mercy. Because none of us are deserving of any type of relationship with God. None of us have done anything to make us worthy of a relationship with God. But rather, He shows us mercy in making this covenant with us. Look at the unbalance in the covenant. Because it most definitely is an unbalanced covenant. God takes His Son and offers Him as a sacrifice so that we can be covered by His blood and forgiven through His death on the cross. We are shown and promised eternal life in Christ through the resurrection. And He calls on us to repent and believe the gospel. And daily we repent and believe the gospel. We repent and believe the gospel. That becomes just our mantra. That becomes the way we operate. Our, our lives are built around repenting and believing the gospel. Do, do you see the unbalance there? Is it not then a covenant of mercy that we should be offered His goodness and grace while being most undeserving of it? A covenant with God is a covenant that offers mercy. The next thing, look here in beginning in verse 44. Not only is it a covenant that offers mercy, but a covenant with God is a covenant that reflects on the works of God. It's a covenant that reflects on the works of God. So he, he begins saying in verse 44, he, he kind of turns from his aside and he, he comes back to the matter at hand. This is his introduction to the second part of the book of Deuteronomy where he begins then to lay out very clearly the law that is set before them. He says, this is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel and they, when they came out of Egypt beyond the Jordan. What he does is he begins to remind them about what God has done. A covenant with God is a reminder of what God has done. Here, with this covenant, the, the main thing, the, the pivotal point for the nation of Israel is that God has brought them out of slavery. So for generations, they have been enslaved in Egypt. They have been slaves to the Egyptians. They started out there in a place of prominence, and now they have become lowest of the low. To the point where even their children were being slaughtered because they were, they were worried about there being too many of them. And so God delivers them out of that. He brings them out of captivity, and He brings them now as they're on the edge of this promised land, this land that has been promised for many generations. And so to introduce the covenant, to, to, to reintroduce them to the laws and the statutes that are going to be so important when they enter into the promised land, God reflects 
reflects them back. Okay, this is what I've done before. This is what I've done for you. This is how I've brought you out of Egypt. This is where I have brought you to, and this is where you're going. And so they reflect on that. Our covenant is based on the works that God has done. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians that believe that our covenant is based on the works that they have done. They try to do enough good stuff, and that gets them into this relationship with God. Have you ever tried that in your life? Have you ever found that the more good stuff you try to do, the more you're reminded of, well, the fact that you don't do enough good stuff? Like you try to be really good and you try to be really good and you try to do good stuff and man, I'm reading my Bible every day and I'm praying and I'm really getting it down. I'm really understanding everything that's going on. I'm really getting it and then you mess up. And it brings you back to the reality that you're not good enough. Oh, you try and you try and you try and you do good things and that's, that's positive. I mean, not... Not like telling you to go do bad things, but, but you get to that point where you realize it's, it's not enough. There's got to be something more. Think about the number of people in our world who, who constantly try to achieve more and more and more, and yet they find out that it's not enough. They, they got to have more stuff. They got to do more things. They got to be greater. They got to be better. It's just not good enough. But the good news for us is that that our relationship with God, this this relationship that you and I have with our Creator is not built on what we have done, but rather it reflects what God has already done. The people of Israel have to know that they did not get themselves to this point. They were slaves. Pharaoh was not going to let them be free. They were trapped on one side of the Red Sea needing to get to the other. And Pharaoh was following them. His army was bearing down upon them. And they could not get across on their own. They did previously and were about to engage in many battles where they were going to be the much weaker force. There was no chance of them gaining victory upon or by themselves. It was not possible unless they could realize that God had done something for them. And so what we read here is that God has brought them out and they have taken possession of this land and they're going to take possession of more land based on what God has done. And so you and I this morning need to to realize that our relationship with God is based on what He has done. Now, some of you may be tempted to look back in your life and reflect on the things that you have done and find your hope in that. So, some of you may be tempted to go back and see when you were a child and you prayed a prayer and you were baptized and that's where you put your hope. Don't. Your hope is in Him. Not not in the water or not in the words that you said. Your hope is in Him. Friends, you you don't want to have to look back 20, 30, 50, 70 years for the place to find your hope. You don't want to look at anything in your life and say, okay, this this is where my hope is found. Your hope is found in Him and what He has done. 
I hope every person here can, can find a moment where they can reflect back and find the time where God saved them. Don't find the time where you were saved, because we can trick ourselves into that. Find the time where God saved you through what He had done. Where He spoke to your heart about what He had done for you in Christ, and through that, saved you. Not a preacher, not a Sunday school teacher, not even your parents. Where, where in that moment, God saved you through His work. Because that's what our covenant is built on. Now I hope from that point until now there's a lot of stuff that you have done because of what He has done. But we don't put our hope in all the stuff we've done. Friends, I I don't put my hope in the fact that I'm preacher, pastor of your church. I don't put my hope in the fact that I went to seminary. I I don't find my hope in the fact that, that in November of 1995, I was baptized. In the summer of 1995, I was at vacation Bible school and the preacher led me in a prayer. That's not where my hope is found. My hope is found all the way back at the cross in the empty tomb of Christ. And what God has been doing in my life is His works. So it was His work when He saved me at that vacation Bible school. It was His work when I was baptized at that church. It's His work in seminary. It's His work as your pastor. If I can see that, there's where I can find hope. But if it's in what I've done, friends, there's no hope there. Because if the Israelites had had to put their faith in what they had done, they left the promised land because they were hungry. They ended up in Egypt and they became slaves. That's what they did. That's where they ended up. And even in that, God was gracious. (laughs) He he put the man in charge of Egypt to not be an Egyptian, but to be a Hebrew. And he fed them, and he kept them up. But they ended up as slaves. And so it took his work to get them out. A covenant with God is a covenant that reflects on the works of God. Thirdly, a covenant with God is a covenant that requires us to appropriately respond. A covenant with God is a covenant that requires us to appropriately respond. Look in chapter 5, verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. When we enter into a covenant relationship with God, there is a proper response for us to have. And so Moses lays out for them this appropriate, proper response. He gathers all of them together, and he says, here's what you need to do. You need to hear what I have to say. You need to learn what I am talking about. And then you need to do the things that you have been commanded. This is the appropriate response when we are in a covenant relationship with God. We first hear what He has to say. He says, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. Friends, you cannot have an appropriate and proper relationship with God if you do not hear God. Did you get that? It means you can't do it on your own. It means you can't just make it up. Now, I know that a lot of people in our culture today, especially in this Christian culture that some people live in, they think that they can just make it up or just live however they want to. 
If you don't believe me, get on social media and see these posts that people post about their relationship with God. They obviously don't know the same God of the Bible. I don't know who they're worshiping. I guess it's someone they've made up in their own mind. But when you read the things that they've posted about what God apparently wants you to do and how God apparently allegedly wants you to live, they've not been reading their Bible to find that information. You want to post stuff about your relationship with Christ online? Just post some Bible verses. Or go read some good books and post quotes. Then once you've done that for a while, you, you might be ready then to begin posting like some real knowledge. Don't go listen to Joe Osteen and Benny Hinn and then post that, please. First, I will unfollow you. And I like looking at pictures of your kids and stuff like that. But I don't need that kind of negativity on my Facebook page. I just don't want to see it. Don't go do that. Those people are heretics. They're not leading people to a relationship with God. They're leading people to hell. That's what they're doing. You say, well, preacher, that's harsh. No, it's true. Now, if truth is harsh, that's your problem, not mine. It's, It's true. That's what they're doing. He says, if you want to be in a covenant, people, he gathers them together. Listen, we're going we're to talk about this covenant with God. We're going to talk about our relationship with God. And the first thing you need to do is to hear what God has said. Are you hearing and listening to what God has said? Are you filling your ears, your eyes, your mind with the things of God? You want to be in a relationship with Him. You want to have this relationship develop and, and grow and be good. Are, are you listening to Him? And I'm not talking about some supernatural thing where you hear voices in your head and you wonder, maybe it's God, maybe it's not. Listen, He gave you His Word. You don't need to like hear a lot else. Tell you what, when you have the Bible memorized and completely understood, then you can start listening for other voices. But that's not likely. Hear it. What do you do after you hear it? What does he say next? Learn it. So hear, so make sure that you have the Word of God coming into your life, whether you're reading it, whether you're hearing it preached, whether you're reading good quality books about it. If you have a question about whether it's good, I will tell you, you know I have opinions about books. And if it's garbage, I'll borrow it from you so I can read it and you'll never get it back. It'll balance one of the shelves of good books in my office. Hear it, but then learn it. That, I think that's where so many Christians stop. So maybe they go to a good church. Maybe they're reading some okay books or they're reading their, their Bible you know, in their weekly devotional or monthly devotional. They occasionally pick it up and interact with it. But, but that's where it stops. So we've got to not only hear what God has said, but we need to learn it. We need to have it in our heart. We need to have it in our mind. It needs to be what directs our life. We we learn it so that we know what He has said, so that we can rattle it back. You need to understand the history of the Bible. You need to understand the storyline of the Bible. It's not just a bunch of random books that have been thrown together. It starts with creation. It moves forward to the fall. Then we have God's history with His chosen people, Israel, and the promise of a Savior. We come to the New Testament. We have the arrival of that Savior. We have His perfect life. We have His death. We have His resurrection. 
He ascends back into heaven where he starts the church. And the rest of the New Testament is God's dealings with the early church and his teachings about how to live as a Christian in a Christian community. And it closes with the book of Revelation that points us to both things that were happening then and things that will happen later. That wasn't that hard. I don't have that written down. I didn't learn it in seminary. I didn't, there's no, ask some of the guys in the church that went to seminary, there's not like a cheat sheet. Okay, by the way, you know, if you, if you want to rattle off the storyline of the Bible, here's your cheat sheet, just read this. You need to know that. Because it's important, because our world tells you that the Bible has got errors in it, that's a mess, it's just all thrown together, it doesn't tell you anything, it's no story, there's, no, there's no, nothing going on, God's not been working, God's not been doing anything, and that's baloney. It's foolishness. And many people who claim the name of Christ have bought into that. We need to hear it, we need to learn it, and then finally he says, and you need to do it. He says, you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Why did you need to be careful to do them? Why not just do them? Why does he say be careful to do them? Because Moses believed, because the Bible teaches, that, that there was judgment for not doing. Remember, in the Old Testament, especially in the time here that Moses is writing, there was not only the, the moral law in, in our interactions with God and, and the ceremonial law, again, in our interactions with God, but there was civil law here too, right? If you go back and you read in the book of Leviticus, you go back and read in the book of Numbers, you also see it here. In Deuteronomy, there is civil law, like how their government was to work. And that's why, as a matter of fact, he sets up these cities, because if he doesn't set up these cities of refuge, then someone could be pursued and put to death for killing another person, even, even if it was accidental. So he says be careful to do them, because he knew, he knows that God took these things seriously. God took these things very seriously. We should hear what God has said, we should learn what God has said, and then we need to put it into practice. And friends, I want to promise you that if we stop at any point before we finish the three of these, we have not been obedient to the covenant we have made with God. So you can go down to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and you can find a guy by the name of Bert Ehrman, and he has read the Bible probably more than us. He has learned more about the Bible than many of us has, but he does not do what God has commanded. In fact, he rejects it. He says it's silly that it's, again, the Bible is full of errors. We don't have Jesus in the Bible like he really was. We don't really know anything about Jesus. We don't know anything, really. Do you think he is pleasing to God? But we know that he is an antagonist to the gospel. What about someone who's not? They've heard it. They've learned it. But they don't do it. Oh, they're not a bad person. We kind of like them. They're not a bad neighbor. They're not a bad church member. Are they pleasing to God? Does it please God to have entered into a relationship with us where we say, God, we're going to repent and believe? And God says, well, this is what I want you to do. I want you to listen to what I've said. I want you to learn it. And I want you to be careful to do it. And we say, you know what? 
I know what you're saying, but I don't really want to do it. God, I kind of like my life the way it is. I kind of like the way I'm going. I, I kind of like the friends that I've got. I kind of like the places that I go. I kind of like the way things are. So it's cool that you did this stuff for me. I'm, I'm thankful for it. But that loving your neighbor thing, you know, I don't really like people. I don't really like my neighbors. It's nice and all that you said that. I'm glad. And that's good for some people, not for me. A covenant with God requires us to appropriately respond. Fourth, a covenant with God is a covenant that is for every generation. Look what he says in verse 2 and 3. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us, <clears throat> who are all of us here alive today. A covenant with God is a covenant that is for every generation. You know, we can't push our relationship with God backward or forward. So, some of you here that are older, maybe you have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, whatever, you can't, your relationship with God doesn't cover them. I'm sorry, it just doesn't. Wish it did, that would make it so much easier, wouldn't it? Because so many of us in this room had faithful parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who were just faithful to the church. They were faithful to the cause of Christ. They were there every time the doors were open. They prayed for us. Wouldn't it be so much, you know, if it was like insurance, you know, you could at least stay on it until you're 26. I mean, wouldn't that be helpful? But it doesn't work like that. And so those of you who are older... You need to realize it doesn't work like that. And so you, you need to be doing things to ensure that your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren have a relationship with Christ. In fact, I, I'll just be honest with you. As a parent, so maybe a few years ago I couldn't say this, but, but I'm, I'd be willing to do anything to try to make sure my parents, I mean, my children have a relationship with Christ. So if, if one day pastoring your church is a hindrance to one of my children having a relationship with Christ, I will leave because you're not worth it. You're not. I'm sorry if that's hard to hear, but you're not. So, so you need to be thinking about that if you have kids, grandkids, whatever, and they don't have a relationship with Christ. What do you need to be doing? Are you, are you telling them they need to have a relationship with Christ? Are you doing whatever it takes to try to help them have a relationship with Christ. But the opposite is also true. Younger folks. Just because your parents have a relationship with Christ doesn't mean you do. And just because your parents don't have a relationship with Christ doesn't mean you can't. So you may have the most faithful church member Christian parent ever. That doesn't save you. But you may have the most vile pagan parent ever. And that doesn't mean that Christ didn't die for you. Friends, there's great testimonies in the history of the church of people who had bad parents and became great Christians. And people who had great parents and they never followed Christ. Think about that. He says, God did not make this covenant with us 
I mean, with, with our parents. Now, he did, didn't he? I mean, he obviously did. He obviously made the covenant with them, but he said the covenant was not made with them. It's being made with us today. So, friends, we don't need to worry about the past because the past is not nearly as important as we think. You know, we were talking the other day, our church is going to be very soon celebrating its 100th anniversary. It's a, a milestone. It's a great milestone for our church. How many of you are here when the church was founded? <laughs> How many of you feel some mornings like you were here when the church was founded? I think there's a few more people. None of us were here, right? Anybody's parents? Anybody's parents, founding members of the church? Anyone? I don't have my glasses on. I don't see a hand. Grandparents, it's good. I, I'm excited to celebrate our 100th anniversary in a couple years. But guess what? That is irrelevant to what God is doing right now. It's irrelevant a year ago to what God is doing right now. Because we can't go back a year ago and save anybody. Anybody that's died in the last year, anybody that's, that's lost their faith and went their own way, we can't... We can't fix it. We can only do what is now. And so I want to encourage you, if you're older and you have a relationship with Christ, that you are projecting that relationship down through the generations. And friends, if you're younger and you don't, don't let anything from the past stop you from having a relationship with Christ now. The covenant is for every generation. Then finally, and fifthly, a covenant with God is a covenant that requires, sorry, a covenant with God is a covenant that requires an intermediary. A covenant with God is a covenant that requires an intermediary. Look in verse 4. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of God, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain. Someone had to stand between the people and God. The sad thing about at least one branch of the church is they believe that there's still a person that goes and does that. So Moses went and did it. After Moses and as the, the order of the priest was established, the priest would go in and do that for you. So if you wanted to, to talk to God, you wanted to uh, ask for forgiveness for sin that you had committed, you went to the priest and he would offer then a sacrifice on your behalf. And so now there's people that still think that there's a person who you go to to do that. You know, you, you come to me, and I can absolve you of your sin. So you come to me with that, and I'm going to want to find more sins that you need to get out. We're going to be absolving all day. I mean, it's just going to be never-ending. Because I know my heart, so I know your heart, and we're going to have a lot to talk about. But the good news is, there's no longer a human intermediary that stands in between you and God. You don't come to me to ask for forgiveness. And unless you've wronged me, I don't need to offer you forgiveness. I can't offer you forgiveness. But the good news is that the New Testament tells us that there is someone who stands between us and God. He stands in that role just as Moses does here. The New Testament paints that picture in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That it is Christ who stands in between us and God. That he stands there as our intercessor. He stands there as our advocate. 
And he stands before God and he pleads our case. He, he points to us. And, and God, if it weren't for Christ, God would see our wickedness. He would see our ugliness. He would see how terrible we are. And, and he would really want nothing to do with us. But, but Christ points us out. He says, this, this one right here, this one, I, yes, dirty, messed up, all that, but, but this one, do you see that this one has been covered by my blood? All the ugliness, all the wretchedness, all the terrible things, all the wickedness that's there. And they're there, but, but, but God, listen to this one. Because he or she is covered by my blood. Friends, here's the good news about the relationship we have with God. Is we do not have this relationship alone. No one else can have it for us except for the fact that Christ stands in between us and God. Christ stands as our intermediary. He stands there and pleads our case. He stands there and preaches to us the word of God. He stands there and offers us forgiveness where we could not find it any other place. Moses stood there between the Lord and them at Horeb because they were terrified to hear God's voice. They saw the smoke, they felt the trembling, and they were terrified. And yet Moses stood there boldly before God. Well, now for us as a Christian, if we are in a covenant relationship with God, Christ stands there as our advocate. He stands there as our intermediary, and He pleads our case before the Father. So I'll tell you that so that you understand this. The first four things sound great, but none of it matters if you do not have the relationship with the intermediary. Because, friends, I want to promise you this, that one day, for each and every person in this room, we will all stand before God. Not only us, but every person who has ever lived will stand before God. On that day, if we stand there alone, we will have no hope. And friends, on that day, your mama, your daddy, they can't come stand with you. Your preacher might not even want me there, but regardless... I can't come stand with you. Some of you, it'd be an upgrade to you by yourself, so don't be too proud. But you don't want me there. Your mommy and your daddy, they'll have their own time. People at the church, they'll have their own time, appointed time where they'll stand there. You will stand there, and if you stand there alone, you will stand there with no hope. So it doesn't matter if you tried to be good, it doesn't matter if you read your Bible. Doesn't matter if you tried to pray, whatever it was, if you stand there by yourself, you'll stand there with no hope. But what God has offered us in this covenant He has made with us, He has offered us the opportunity that we can stand there, not by ourselves, but with His Son. And if you think He loves you, imagine the love that He has for His only begotten. For the firstborn of all creation. For the Alpha and the Omega. The Lamb that was slain. Imagine the love that He has for Him. Friends, you and I need to be in a relationship with God. If you're not in one today, you desperately need a relationship with God. But the only way to have a relationship with Him is through Christ. And if on that final day we stand there, alone 
God will look at us and say, depart from me, I don't know you. But if he sees us standing there with his son, he says, well done. If he sees there sees us standing there with his son, he, he, he wraps his arms around us and calls us his own. He calls us his son. He calls us his daughter. He gives us everything that has been given to Christ. Friends, we need a relationship with him. We need to be in a covenant with him, and it comes through an intermediary, and that intermediary is Christ. So I wonder this morning, have you thought much about the relationship we, you have with God? Is it all built on what you've done? So, hey, I, I, I got myself up and got to church. and You get extra points if you come to First Baptist Iker because we have service at 9. That's so much better than at 11 because you get extra points. Or is your relationship with God built on what He has done? Is it built upon His offer of salvation? Is it built upon you turning from your sin and following Him because of what He has done? Is your relationship with God built through an intermediary? So many people in our society today say they have a relationship with God, but they never talk about Christ. And yet God says, only through Christ do you have a relationship with me. That's what the religions of the world are lacking. They can claim this, or they can claim this morality, they can claim this, but they do not have Christ. And they do not have Him as the high and lifted up Savior. Friends, that's the only way to have a relationship with God. And if this morning you do not know Him, He calls on you to repent, turn from your sin, and believe the gospel. Believe the good news of what He has done. This morning, he's calling upon us to remember the relationship we have with him and to live accordingly. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you have shown us in Christ. We, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. God, I, I call upon everyone who is here this morning to either enter into a relationship with Christ to turn from their sin, to believe the gospel. God, or those that are, I call upon them to seek after how they might strengthen the covenant they have made with you. God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in Christ. God, be with us. God, our hearts, as we sing, as we God, just focus on your word. God, love on us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we get ready to sing. Are you focusing on that relationship with Christ? There's some things you need to hear, and there's some things you need to learn, some things you need to be doing. Are you doing those things? Are you, are you focused on that? And friends, if you do not know Christ this morning, do not leave here. Come and find me during this invitation time after the service. Let me share with you how you can know Him. Friends, because we will all stand there one day. But in Christ, we stand there with full assurance of the great hope that we have in Him. Will you respond to the Word of God this morning as we sing?